Dear Heavenly Father, uh, just a brief mention of thanks, Father, acknowledging your presence, acknowledging your authority in this room by your spirit, that your word, Father, is the lamp to our feet. It is the guide that directs us into all righteousness. It is the means by which you have brought us to know you. It will also be the means by which you uh, mold our, our natures and our heart to your will. And I pray, Father, that you would be at work tonight, as you do every night we meet in your name, to remind us of who you are and who we are and of what you've done for us and of why it was so necessary and how we are to take what we've learned to others so that they would also be counted among the family of God. We ask, Father, we would uh, have that urgency as we leave the study tonight. Show us why it is so important. In Jesus' name I pray. Our story of Saul and David is going to start reading like a Coyote and Roadrunner cartoon script from this point forward because Saul is fast becoming obsessed with finding ways to get rid of David. Whether by hook or crook or exploding bomb or catapult or whatever he can figure out, somehow he has to get David's tormenting presence out of the palace and out of his life. And what's so bad about David? Well, putting aside the supernatural causes of a tormenting evil spirit, the main reason is David's continuing rise to prominence, his widespread appeal. No matter what Saul does to David, David prospers. And to make matters worse, David is so annoyingly humble about it all. And I'm being facetious, of course. The nature of the problem is Saul, in his paranoia, his jealousy, his evil heart, can't withstand David's presence because of the perceived threat of David in his life. But we know the Lord is the one bringing about all of this so he can use one of these men to school the other. Saul is David's tutor, though I don't think either of them appreciated that. And so David's going to be seasoned by Saul over ten difficult years before becoming king. And Saul will provide the seasoning through paranoia and jealousy. Now, as we say all that, we also have to realize that Saul can't get the upper hand. The Lord can never allow Saul to actually kill David or actually put him out. Just as every Roadrunner cartoon had to end with a hapless coyote falling from the cliff or flattened by his own contraption or whatever, so must it be for Saul. His every effort is going to fall back upon himself rather than upon David. David will prevail. Therefore, it's not the outcome that's important. The outcome is preordained. Rather, it is the mayhem that leads us there that is important. Each time Saul tries to put an end to David, the Lord's going to block the path, and yet he will leave Saul just enough room to operate so that he puts David in a position where David must react in some way. And that's the key. We're learning how God trains David up by the way David reacts in each of these moments. He has to run. He has to hide. He has to raise like-minded soldiers. He has to find allies. He has to cry out to the Lord. He has to deal with temptations to put his enemy to death. Through it all, he grows, he matures, he learns. Let's start in chapter 19 tonight, verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. 
Then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these words and Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as formerly. Well, so far so good. Looks like Saul's first attempt on David's life is uh, rather unimaginative. He, he just abandons all pretense of working in David's best interests and he tells his son Jonathan and all the servants, please go kill David for me. And now you see why the Lord has knit Jonathan's heart to David's heart in the earlier chapter we studied because now that these two men are in covenant Jonathan is bound by that covenant to protect David's life even at the expense of his father's orders so not only can Jonathan not carry out the king's orders he must stop anyone else from carrying out those orders as well because in a covenant of this kind you're not only vowing to do right by someone else you're also vowing to protect them against anyone who would do otherwise Samuel says Jonathan greatly delighted in David. So we know he was personally motivated to protect David. I mean, he liked the guy. It wasn't just because of the covenant. But the covenant stands between him and his father. So he tells David, look, my dad's trying to kill you. That was his first betrayal of his father in favor of the covenant, to even tell David of what had been ordered. And he says, I'm going to try to help rectify this situation. I doubt David was very surprised, by the way, to hear that Saul had given orders to kill him. After the spear-throwing episodes, I'm sure that David probably had a suspicion something was up. But for Jonathan to tell David about this order and to not have carried it out himself, for that matter, is a betrayal of his father. But for the right reason, because he is a covenant he can't break. And he says, here's the plan. Let me go find out more about what my father is actually planning. It seems that he's arranged for David to hide in some place near where Saul was staying. Now, why would he care where the hiding place was? Well, I think he did this so that once he had won his father over, which he was anticipating doing, then he could orchestrate a quick reconciliation. Because remember, time is of the essence here. The word's gone out. David's supposed to be killed. Everyone's looking for him. If one of the servants finds David before David gets back into Saul's good graces, the whole plan goes awry. So Jonathan's got David kind of nearby where he can keep an eye on him and at the same time working to fix the problem. So in what you read, of course, Jonathan is successful based on the argument that David was innocent. David had done great things for Saul. He had uh, killed the Philistines. Uh, He served honorably for Saul. The people rejoiced over David. Saul rejoiced over David. So in other words, it would just be flat out unjust for Saul to kill this man. It's that last part, though, that I mentioned that, that probably was the argument that swayed Saul the most. And that last part was how the people perceived David, that the, the people rejoiced over David. I think that may have been the selling point, because I wonder if Saul was considering the ramifications of killing a popular man like David, who everyone knew was innocent and everyone knew was doing the right things by Saul and so on and so forth. Perhaps that was giving Saul pause to think about doing what he planned to do. But... And you don't have to read further ahead to know how this is going to turn out because you've read enough already with Saul, right? He's going to break this vow just like he's broken every other vow that he's ever made at any time. Verse 8. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal let David down through a window and he went out and fled and escaped. Michal took the household idol and laid it on the bed. 
and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? If you're not keeping count, this is Saul's fourth attempt to put David to death. And once again, the Lord uses a member of Saul's household to save David. The passage begins with this continual war with the Philistines getting hot once more. And again, David goes out to battle. And again, David succeeds. We can assume safely that Saul was secretly hoping David would die in the battle. But he slaughters the Philistines in great number. They retreat back into the coastal plain. Another impressive victory for David. Everyone cheering and women weeping and all the rest. At that point, his victory must have reminded Saul of all the reasons why he wanted David gone in the first place. And then with that evil spirit stirring up Saul's hatred and paranoia, he grabs the spear again, and here we go. Once more, he tries to pin David to the wall. To pin David to the wall, it emphasizes the force with which he was throwing this thing. And in fact, it says after it missed him, it was still sticking in the wall. So we're talking about a man who was enraged at David. With that throw, David finally realizes that Saul is not a man who can keep his promise and probably not a guy you want to hang around anymore. So David leaves the court knowing there is no chance of survival if he stays with Saul. And therefore, from this point forward in his life, David will be a fugitive from Saul. He will live on the lamb about ten years. He will never be free from living this way until Saul dies. His first place to flee is to his home, his wife's home, where his wife is, obviously, It's probably the place he goes because where else are you going to go? And David's wife, McCall, gives him the sound but certainly difficult advice that he has to leave. Her husband needs to run away from her and save his life. This is a very self-sacrificial request on her part. David escapes through that window. This shows you the jeopardy that he's in. He can't even walk out his own front door. He's being let out a back window down in a basket because the people from Saul, the king, are probably looking for David and maybe would be watching the house to see when he left, etc. And because he's being watched and because they think he's there, his wife then prepares a ruse to delay their finding. Now, it's not going to last forever. She knows that. The goal is just to give him time to escape. So she makes a dummy in the bed from goat hair and the household idol. And once again, it's Saul's child devising a plan, just like Jonathan did the first time. Now it's Michal to do it this time, a plan for David's own good, which he follows. What are we to conclude from the fact that there was a household idol in David's house? Right? Everyone's thinking that? Most readers of 1 Samuel conclude that the idol belonged to Michal, not to David. Household idols were usually the property of the heir of the family, and even for someone like David and his wife, they would not have been literally an idol. They were more a token proof of inheritance rights. You may remember the story of Rachel and Jacob when they are escaping from Laban, worried that Laban's going to chase them and bring them back. So Rachel takes household idols from Laban's house, puts them underneath the saddle. When Laban catches up to them and says, I want to find the idols, They aren't able to search her because she says it's her time of the month. And so no one would go near her. She's unclean. So she's able to successfully hide them. But because they're never found and Laban knows that Jacob and Rachel have them somewhere, it creates a problem for Laban. Because whoever possesses the household idols, it's like possessing the will. You possess the right to the inheritance of the family. And therefore, what happens at that point? Laban sets up a covenant where neither of them will ever come see each other again. Laban's only protection at that point is you can never come back. 
So they agreed to a covenant in which Laban will never go to find Jacob, and Jacob will never come back to Laban's house. That's Laban's way to protect himself from someone ever coming after his death and presenting those household idols and taking the inheritance away from whoever else would have had it in Laban's family. So the idea here is that Rachel was not worshipping them. Rachel was using them as a defense against Laban being able to come back after her and her husband once they had fled. It's likely these had the same effect here, that they were proof of inheritance. Michal had one because they were going to give her some portion of Saul's inheritance as he distributed them to his children. And in this case, it must have been a large idol. That's not necessarily unusual. The ones in Jacob's day were small. They could be held under a saddle. This one is big enough to look like David laying in bed, or close to it anyway, with a little bit of hairdressing, it seems. So it's put in the bed. Later, we'll see that Michal is going to prove to be a disappointment in other ways. But for now, she seems to be helping. When the servants come for David, Michal points to the quilt of goat hair and told them, David's sick in bed, leave him alone. And so they leave. It's kind of interesting to me that that's enough for them to say, oh, I guess we won't take him, he's sick. We'll come back later when he's feeling better. (laughs) David took a sick day. Then we're going to kill you. Interestingly, the Septuagint translates the Hebrew word for quilt of goat hair as goat liver. And therefore, it's not a quilt of goat hair, it's goat liver under the quilt. The sense is that Macau put a goat liver under the quilt so that when she stroked the quilt like she's rubbing the back of her husband, the quilt would undulate like a person breathing. Makes it look more realistic. Who knows what she did? Well, the goat was giving up something either way, right? <laughs> either way, there's an unhappy goat in this story. All right, whatever she did... It was convincing to the point of the servant's retreat. They go back, they tell Saul, Saul does what any harsh boss does when you claim a sick day. Go back, pick up the bed, bring him back in. And then I'm going to kill him. When they return, they discover they've been tricked. Uh, The father has come back, obviously. They turn their attention to her because she's committed a high crime here. She has to think fast to save her skin, and she does. She says, David was threatening to kill me. I did this under duress. It was either this or my life. And that was enough, of course, for Saul to leave her alone. McCall is in a covenant as well. Jonathan is in a covenant with David. McCall's in a covenant with David. The marriage covenant is a covenant. The covenant made her one flesh with David. And as such, she was expected to give her loyalties to David over all others. And nonetheless, her choice to go against the king was dangerous here. And it was a crime punishable by death. I don't think you can excuse her sin in protecting David through a lie. But clearly the Lord is working through her sin to accomplish good things for David. And David too recognized that the Lord was at work to protect him in this moment because it's this moment that he memorialized in Psalm 59. So I'm going to read Psalm 59 for us. Psalm 59 says, For the choir director set to Al-Tashheth, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Verse 1, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. You, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. They return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for you. For God is my stronghold. My God, in his loving kindness, will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them, or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power, and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. 
On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride and on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. They return at evening, they howl like a dog and go around the city. They wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. In that psalm, three times David mentions loving kindness. That's a covenantal term. It's a very special word. It's a word that always carries the sense of a covenant. It doesn't have a meaning really outside that. So a covenant with God, loving kindness in the morning, loving kindness from the God who's saving him. It's an indication that he believes the covenant he has with the Lord, the covenants he has perhaps with Jonathan or with Michal, are going to save the day for him. God is using all of those things. So now David's on the run. He's gone from his palace to his home. Now he's gone from his home. Where's he going to go next? Where else do you go? Well, there's only one person stronger than Saul in the land right now. Verse 18. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naioth. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then, Samuel, or then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. And they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and came as far as the large well that is in Seku, and he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Naioth in Ramah. He proceeded there to Naioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naioth in Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, Is Saul also among the prophets? So Samuel reappears now in the story. It's been a while. Last time we saw him, he was anointing David. And then we had that episode where he refused to see Saul again after Saul decided to keep some of Agag's possessions instead of killing everyone like he was told to do, right? So Samuel's been back in Ramah doing his thing as a man leading a school of prophets. And uh, he hasn't gone back to see Saul since. Now David comes, and David looks at Samuel as his best opportunity to avoid an attack from Saul. And Saul hears that David has gone there, of course, sends his servants. And we see the story, right? Three different waves of servants. Three different times they try to take him. Three different times the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them. And they begin to do the Lord's bidding, not Saul's bidding, in each case. By prophesying. We don't know what they were saying. But when you hear this in the Old Testament, do not get a sense from what you see practiced in a modern form in corners of the church, mostly unbiblically. This is not some kind of lack of body control, ridiculousness. This is simply just someone acting normal, except that the words that come out of their mouth are directed by God, as opposed to something they themselves might be saying instead. It's prophesying in the sense that they're speaking things that don't make sense, except that God would have them speak. I think, for example, in this case, they might have been speaking about David, about him having the Lord's anointed, prophesying concerning David's rise to be king, David's plan to be the the leader of Israel, that he would unite his people, blah, 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 who knows. But the point is, it would be things that the servants called to come kill David would definitely not say if it were totally up to them. And in that sense, they're prophesying, but probably under full control of their faculties. Then, just the fact that Saul sends servants three times tells us something, doesn't it? It demonstrates Saul isn't listening to the Lord. He's not interested in obeying the Lord. I mean, if he had, 
then he couldn't have helped but notice that the Lord is supernaturally rebuffing his orders at every turn, right? He would have saw that the first time, not much less the third time. But that's not how Saul is thinking. So in an act of hubris and pride, he decides he will come to Naoth, that word just means the abode of the prophets, to Ramah to take David himself. But as with the servants that preceded him, once again the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul and he prophesies. Moreover, he takes all his clothes off, which in that day and age was unheard of. Only crazy prophets did that. He lays naked here, prostrate before Samuel, prophesying for a day and a night. So you have a king determined by his own authority to kill the Lord's servant, now prostrate naked before the Lord's prophets, serving the Lord by speaking prophecy. And his nakedness is a part of this. It's symbolically a picture of the Lord stripping of, him, of his royal authority and his honor. And his posture indicates complete submission to the anointing of God in Samuel. And then it ends with that repeating of the phrase that we saw marking Saul's rise. People were saying, is he now become one of the prophets? You remember when that first came out? That was right back after they first identified Saul as the first king. And he started to prophesy in a place that was a school for prophets. And people thought, is he among the prophets now? In the beginning, it was marking the coming of the Spirit upon Saul and anointing him. Now it's being uttered as the Spirit returns to Saul temporarily to create this scene. It's as if, I think, to remind the reader that Saul began as a man under the influence of the Spirit, but it never seemed a natural fit. Remember back when it first came, everyone was like, I see what he's doing, but he can't actually be one of the prophets, can he? It seemed incredulous to them that this man would have had that kind of anointing from God, that is, to be a prophet. Every time Saul has spoken the word of the Lord under the Spirit's influence, people have wondered aloud whether it was truly what was going on or not. In the first case, because they're surprised that an unknown like Saul would have had that opportunity. And now, in this case, everyone has full knowledge of his character, making it even more surprising that he would have the anointing of God's Spirit upon him. They knew that their king was trying to kill the very man who had saved them from the Philistines on multiple occasions. They must have known he was acting crazy and unpredictable. And so when they see him starting to do something that is clearly spirit-driven, their only thought is, surely this can't be him becoming one of the prophets. It just makes no sense. It's a phrase of derision at this point, not a compliment. After this episode, David is able to leave Ramah safely, but of course this is just one episode in the ongoing saga. David is searching for a way to put an end to the chase, so he returns to Jonathan for answers. So chapter 20 now, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do it for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down and to eat with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third morning. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says it is good, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Verse 8. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. 
For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. So David is confronting Jonathan. And remember I said a little while ago that the whole purpose in these trials for David is so that he has a chance to react. And in the reacting, he's learning through the experiences he has what godliness looks like in the face of these moments. And though he's not doing anything objectively wrong here, it's also not ideal. He's showing a lot of fear and concern. He's second-guessing his covenant partner in Jonathan. He's not showing what we might consider to be strong faith in the sense of trusting God to deal with him. Remember, the psalm I just read, which David wrote, he wrote many years later while he was in the desert. Looking back on that moment, he wrote with a different mindset than the one you see he's exhibiting here in the text of the moment. Wouldn't you agree? The psalm sounds a lot more assured that he's going to be fine and a lot less worried about the outcome than he's sounding to Jonathan right now. That's intentional. You're getting to see what the value of the trial is in his life. So he confronts Jonathan. He asks what would have been an obvious question for someone in his situation. What did I do to Saul? And of course, the question that he's asking could never have an acceptable answer. Right? David didn't do anything. Saul is acting irrationally in this situation. The Lord is working, though, through all of that to accomplish something in David's life. And I think every Christian needs to remember David's question from this scene and try to bring it back to mind when things are going horribly and unfairly wrong for you under some set of circumstances. David asks, what did I do wrong knowing he was innocent, at least with regard to Saul? And he assumes, I would imagine, by nature of the question, he's assuming, if I'm innocent, then nothing bad should happen to me. And yet, here he is. Something bad is happening to him nonetheless. And that's what we need to remember too. We need to remember that just because we're innocent in in regard to some specific situation, that doesn't mean the Lord is being unjust if he allows us to suffer in some way in the midst of our innocence. That suffering is still just if it serves his good purpose in our life, and it will. Suffering is probably the most powerful way that the Lord has, the most powerful tool he has to grow us spiritually. David doesn't understand, it seems yet, that that's what the Lord is doing here. So what he's doing is the same thing we would do. He's looking for ways to escape his predicament. But we have to learn from his experience, knowing that in most bad circumstances, the good that's planned has to come from our wrestling with that circumstance and not conceding to it, not laying down and being a victim to it necessarily, but neither running from it prematurely. And I think we all can get a sense in our hearts in the midst of something like that, what the right path is, what what escaping prematurely looks like and what dealing with it looks like. And look, if a man like David, who is obviously held high in esteem in Scripture, had to go through a process that we're seeing play out here, why would any of us think we're beyond it? It's got to be a natural part of anybody's experience. So Jonathan is the friend David desperately needed here. And that's another thing I I tend to remember in my set of circumstances is God doesn't leave us alone. He gives us friends. He gives us partners, somebody who's going to be there when we need them. And that's how God will work. David had Jonathan. And Jonathan reassures David that Saul will not be successful in taking David's life. In fact, Jonathan tells him, I know everything my dad's going to do before he's going to do it, which is to say, I can always be a step ahead of him and make sure that you're safe. But David isn't so optimistic. He says, but won't Saul anticipate that you're helping me and therefore withhold details from you? You know, he's just playing out the logic. And that's David going back to the pessimistic, woe is me, 
perspective in this moment. This is not the David that walked out onto the field against Goliath, is it? Just for a moment, I think you see why the Lord wants to strengthen David through this trial. So if David was a bit too pessimistic, then you might say Jonathan is being a little overly optimistic. He tells David, look, you know, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do and we'll be fine. And David says, well, there is this new moon festival planned. It's coming up soon. And that would be the right occasion for us to try to really understand his heart. New moons in Israel begin the month. They have a lunar calendar and their calendar begins with a new moon every month. And that day was marked for a sacrificial meal, a sacrifice with a feast that followed. And it appears that the king, Saul, held a special feast meal in the palace for his staff, his high-ranking staff, whoever they were, including David, and that you were all expected to be at the king's table for that feast once a month, like staff meeting or something. You couldn't miss it. Obviously, if Saul is actively trying to kill David, he's going to be very angry if David's not there because he would have been anticipating a chance to kill David, and he expected David to show up. So David tells Jonathan, make an excuse for me. And the excuse he makes is that I'm going back to Bethlehem, that's his hometown, and that he says my family has an annual family feast coinciding with this event. That's like saying I have a family reunion that I can't miss. And it happens to be this particular day. Now, David was lying. And in the early days of running from Saul, this is the kind of thing that David is prone to do. But as time goes on, as he spends more time on the lamb, he will rest more and more in the Lord for protection, as the Psalms indicate. And he'll be less inclined to do this kind of stuff, which is itself a proof that his trials were a source of purification, just as Scripture promises. Saul's response to the news is the key then. If he responds angrily, then the game's up. We know he was planning to kill David. If he responds ambivalently, well, then it doesn't seem like he has that much concern for David after all. Jonathan likes the plan. He says, let's act on it. And he helps David hide in the field. And then he's going to go to the dinner. And while David is hiding in the field, instead of going to Bethlehem or anywhere else for that matter, the rest of it takes place. And you might ask, well, why is he hiding in the field? Why doesn't he hide somewhere else? Well, it's probably the case that he has nowhere else to hide. Where else could he be that he's safe if the king's trying to kill you, right? So, verse 12. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out about my father, about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon. And you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day, and you shall remain by the stone, Azel. I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target, and behold, I will send the lad, saying, Go find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come, for there is safety for you and no harm as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you, well, go, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So Jonathan promises David that he will 
do as David asks, and then he devises this creative way in which he can get word back to David in the event of what he learns. So if Saul shows kindness to David, then what Jonathan's going to do is he's going to call for David to return to the king's court. But if the king desires to do David harm, then Jonathan still has to have a way to let David know that, but without giving away David's position to anyone else who might follow him. And by the way, Jonathan's taking a considerable risk in either case here. He's put his own life on the line in order to help David. So he asks at this point for another covenant. The first covenant we studied that they made a chapter back or so, a couple chapters back, that was a suzerainty covenant in which Jonathan pledged his love to David unconditionally, a one-way covenant. David was gaining the benefit of what Jonathan was offering him in the covenant. David was not asked to do anything. And that's a suzerainty, unconditional covenant. Now, this time, though, Jonathan is proposing a parity covenant for different reasons. Jonathan, on his part, will do something, and David, on his part, will do something. Jonathan, on his part, will divulge his father's intent toward David at the risk of his own life, thus saving David's life. David, for his part, will pledge to protect Jonathan's household forever. That is to say, his descendants will not be killed Because Jonathan knew that David was the anointed one. He would be the next king. So that meant David's house, that is his family line, would become the new line for the monarchy. And therefore, it would be natural for that line to consider Saul's house, the previous king's line, to be rivals and enemies from that day forward. Therefore, it would have been natural for whoever became king, David, to kill any heirs of Saul who might have threatened the throne. So Jonathan has good reason to worry that he and his family might be in jeopardy when David assumes the throne. Because remember, the first covenant didn't preclude David from doing anything to Jonathan. It was Jonathan's promise that he would always follow David. So Jonathan now wants David's assurance in a second covenant that he would treat, David would treat Jonathan's family with, there's that word again, loving kindness. That is a covenantal term that means forever showing favor. Even after David's enemies are completely gone from the earth, he says, David would have to continue showing favor to Jonathan's household. This is a parity covenant because it depends on performance. Once they agree to the terms, and once Jonathan has done what Jonathan is committing to do, now David is obligated to do his part without any exception. It is a lifelong covenant, like all covenants, binding until death, where David, not to keep his part of the covenant, he would have to be put to death. So both men vow, and a second covenant is struck between them. Now Jonathan begins to enact the plan. He's concerned about how does he get word to David, and he devises this whole thing with the arrows. And you can see what the text said, right? Pretty simple. If I shoot them to this one direction where the servant has to come out, and you can see that, then just follow him back in. It means everything's all right. If I shoot it over your head, though, it's a sign that you need to just run before the servant gets to you and keep going because dad wants to kill you. Later in 2 Samuel, we see the outworking of the covenant that is struck here at this moment in David's life. Because as king, David will call for his servants to find any relatives of Saul who he does not already know, who need to be shown the loving kindness that David was obligated to show under this covenant. Now by that point, Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, and he doesn't know if there's anyone else still out there. And they bring back a crippled son of Jonathan called Mephibosheth. They find him. This crippled guy has been a beggar, a guy who is potentially the enemy of David, at least in the way most people would think of it. He's the sole remaining heir of Saul's family. He's the next king if they were ever to bring Saul's house back to the throne. And David, being faithful to his covenant, goes after this man. We first hear about him in chapter 4. In chapter 4 of Second Samuel, just one verse, we read this. 
Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan, of them dying, that is, came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he, the son, fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So he was crippled in that accident. And now David calls for him to appear before him. Due to his crippled nature, he can't stand before the king. And he's told that the king has sent servants, David has sent servants to take him, to literally drag him back to the palace. Now I want you to imagine what Mephibosheth was probably thinking. He probably doesn't know about the covenant between David and Jonathan. No one else would have known about it because there was no one else at the moment. All he knows is he's the last living male heir to the house of Saul and his grandfather's rival has called for him to appear in the palace. So what do you assume? You're assuming the worst, right? He must have assumed he's going to be killed any minute. But what David does is this in 2 Samuel 9, 7. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, this is Mephibosheth, he said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant, Ziba, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? David recognizes that Mephibosheth must have been very afraid. David understands why he's afraid. Remember, David himself was saying similar things to Saul in a way when Saul was first approaching him. But David's quick to say, don't worry. I've called you here to show you loving kindness, essentially, the covenantal term. And why? Because Mephibosheth deserved it? No, because of something that happened totally outside of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth knows he is receiving something that he shouldn't receive. That's why he asked that rhetorical question, why would you be giving all this to me? And David's answer is, uh, because of a loving kindness that was previously shown to me from your father. In Exodus 34.6, you hear that this loving kindness is a part of God's own nature. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's that covenantal term again. That's a word that we have another word for. Grace, unmerited favor. Right? It's a kind of kindness that is given to someone, not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of the grace of the one who's willing to offer it. So David was willing to restore Mephibosheth to the king's table, but on the basis of another's act of faithfulness, not on the basis of Mephibosheth's worthiness, but on the basis of that earlier agreement. And just quickly, look at what Mephibosheth received. He inherited property that had been his grandfather's. He had the benefit of servants to feed him and to care for his land. He dined at the king's table. So he goes from being a dead dog, a worthless person in the eyes of all Israel, to becoming a son of the king by adoption, basically, eating at the king's table continually. Now, you already know David is a type of Christ. Can you make the rest of the pattern for yourself out of the story of Mephibosheth? You have a king showing grace, unmerited favor to an unworthy man, someone who should have been considered an enemy 
of the king by nature, yet on the basis of a covenant of faithfulness made earlier between two other people, in other words, through an ancestor of this man, the king can now bestow grace upon this man and he will enjoy the riches of the king's pleasure, dining at the table, etc., etc. That's exactly how you should see yourself in relationship to Christ the king. That's what happened. We were like the poor Mephibosheth, dead as dogs, unable to stand in the king's presence by our own power. But by the grace of God, by the grace of the king, we've been made to stand, Paul says. And what exactly did we do to deserve it? Nothing. Unmerited favor. It was on the basis of an earlier covenant. Mephibosheth was a descendant of Jonathan, a man in covenant with the king. And likewise, God made us members of Abraham's family through whom he originally presented the covenant that leads to the new covenant in Christ. And so we receive those blessings. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for a chance to remember the grace that you've uh, extended to us through the work of Christ. I love pictures like this, Father, because they help us remember all the details of what it took to put us in the place that we find ourselves in now, Father. That even the fact that you would take a man like Mephibosheth and put him in a state of, of, uh, in which he's lame, which he can't stand, and, and let him live his life that way, Father, because it was more important to you that we have this picture for all ages of how you take the crippled uh, heart of, a, of an unbeliever and give us the strength to stand in Christ's righteousness, Father. It just reminds us, Father, that our lives are putty in your hands and you use them as you desire so that you can tell a story that is about you and about your grace. And we all receive the joy of it in time, as Mephibosheth did at the table of David. Thank you, Lord, for that reminder. Thank you for this opportunity to study and bring us back next week, perhaps with others as as well, Father. And let us continue to learn from your feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.